0: I'm only going to start the episode this way because she made light of it too. Cluck, cluck. <laughs> Let's welcome Mitzi Purdue, the wife of the late Frank Purdue, who was the owner of, yes, the Purdue company with over 20,000 employees. She's also the daughter of the president and co-founder of the Sheraton Hotel chain. Like, that's... Bananas. I can't even imagine. Well, actually, I can't imagine now because she's given me a little window into what it was like to be raised as little Mitzi as the Sheraton Hotel chain daughter. It's so wild. Anyway, she's also the most recent uh, known author connected to the biography of my friend who was also on the show. Mark Victor Hansen. It's in fact how we got connected. He's the author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. And just, oh my gosh, these two together, I can't imagine the laughter and the lightheartedness and the wisdom, gosh, to be a fly on that wall. You guys get to be a fly on the wall today in this dynamic conversation. She is such a treasure. And ultimately to hear about this next season of her life. First off, when we aired the episode at the time of recording live, she was it was her birthday. So she's 82. So if you would just share and tag this out and celebrate Mitzi, 82 years old, and to hear specifically about what she's investing her time, energy, and millions of dollars into, go to donorc.com backslash Ukraine. The show notes have it, so surely click and we're asking for $5, $50, $500, $500,000 to save lives. Her original intent was to help through the sex trafficking elements of saving and rescuing. And then she realized there was a greater problem that would inhibit said rescues from actually living a free life. If you guys know anything about PTSD, maybe you do, maybe you don't know about secondary PTSD, we get into it in this episode. Mitzi, you're a dynamic human. I'm so excited to partner with you in everything that you're working on. Thank you for the generosity and for helping me understand generosity in a whole new lens after sharing bits and pieces of your dad and bits and pieces of your husband. What a treasure. Enjoy y'all. Well, you all are in for a treat today, as am I, as I have an opportunity to get to know my new friend, Mitzi Perdue, who was introduced by Mark Victor Hansen. Y'all know him as the chicken soup for the soul guy, who is also a publisher and friend. And Mitzi, we're so honored to have you here today. And I can't wait to get into your just backstory. Thank you for
1: coming. Well, I'm absolutely overjoyed to be on. And Oh, I love it that you're friendly with Mark Victor Hansen because I'm going to say something joking, but it's also true. <laughs> okay. All right. You are in the presence of the world's greatest living authority on Mark Victor Hansen.
0: Yeah, I know. I feel so honored. And to like, I love that his biography that has, has just newly come out, right? When did that actually come out?
1: Uh, late last year.
0: Yeah, 2022. Okay. So to get your hands on this is such a resource because he is a, uh, just a, such a vibrant person. He's done so many different things, but I think to be able to be in your seat and kind of analyze and go through and storytell with him, it's such a treasure. I'm sure it's one of, been one of your life's favorite works, huh?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, including, here's something that helps make it a favor. It's won 10 national awards for best biography. That's and- unbelievable. Yeah, and I think uh, it's not that I'm a great writer. I'd love to think that I am. But I think <laughs> the fact is, he's just got such a great story, and there's so many wonderful lessons to learn from him that uh, it almost, you know, almost couldn't help but do well.
0: How did you guys get connected originally?
1: Oh, it's it's such a, all right, here's what happened. Um, I'm a public speaker by trade. I love speaking, and I got invited to Dubai. Woohoo! Mm, fancy. And in the audience was somebody who heard me speak, and he said, you know what, I think I should introduce you to my good friend, Mark Victor Hansen, because I think you're just going to like each other. And I'll tell you my honest reaction. I was saying, oh, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. I I have so much respect and admiration for him that I was kind of thinking, you know, I'm speaking to the great, I'm about to speak to the great Mark Victor Hansen. Uh, What would I say? <laughs> and so I almost wanted to chicken out um, <laughs> no pun intended but about chicken well, out <laughs> intended because I don't know if, if uh maybe you do maybe you don't maybe some of our audience does or doesn't but uh I was married to the chicken man Mark yes right for do has a special meaning for me but, so but in any case um uh, I didn't chicken out and here's something that I will share with everybody. Mark Victor Hansen is the easiest person to talk with in the world. Uh, he just, he draws you out. He's just totally interested in you. Yeah. And so that, that conversation was extremely easy. He was kind of interested in my late husband and kind of what made him tick. And yeah, that led to another conversation to another conversation until finally we were talking almost every day. And wow. then I got to know his wife, Crystal and she and I talked a lot and Somewhere around maybe half a year into this, I asked him, Mark, has anybody ever written a biography of you? Wow. And he said no, but he had written a biography that I had written of my late husband and he liked it. And wow. he agreed that I could do it. So that's how I became Mark. Wow.
0: That is incredible. So was the biography about your husband the first biography you have ever written?
1: Uh, no, it wasn't. I've I've actually written several, not not of great big famous people, but uh, and normally my writing is in in my life for a good bit of my life. I wrote a weekly column for Scripps Howard on the environment, wow. and it did become the uh, most widely syndicated environmental uh, column in the country during its time. Wow, so, was
0: that when you were married, before marriage, or after marriage?
1: During marriage.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, it makes sense alongside all of the environmental work that you all had to do in order to be a family in that industry. I can only imagine the interest that it took and then also the reputation that was connected to that.
1: Yeah. Well, here's something that some people know, many people don't. But uh, my family, the Purdue family, were the largest producer of organic chicken in the world. Wow. Uh, And and that takes doing it, it it took almost a decade of you know learning how to do it because anybody in the world can grow organic chicken, but the problem is the chickens die. You have yeah. to learn how to keep them healthy if you're not using antibiotics or genetically modified anything. Wow. And and I talked with a Purdue veterinarian who told me there's almost a hundred things you have to get right in the food, in the cleanliness, in the probiotics, you know, to, to produce a to produce organic chickens and have them stay healthy. Um,
0: I did not know that. I mean, my sister just moved to a farm like 2020 and we're beach girls. Like we were born and bred on the, on the beach. Like I have sand in all the places all the time. And so when she told me that they were moving from here to like a 97 acres, I'm like, what are you going to do out there? And so now she has chickens and sheep and and cows and horses and all the things. And it's been just in the last three years to like vicariously live through her and hear all the stories of taking care of animals. Like she's lost so many chickens. She's lost pigs. She's lost lambs. And just the the nature and the circle of life that occurs, I cannot imagine doing it to the level in which Purdue does.
1: Well, as I said, uh, 10 years for us to really – Get it down, and again, a hundred different things that you have to get right. Sure. And, and we've done it, and it doesn't mean that we uh that we make more money on each chicken. Uh, yeah, really, we don't. But here's where it's a huge advantage to us, and why, yeah, you know, why I recommend being uh environmental to people. Yeah. It's been fabulous for market share. Yeah, I you bet know, there there are a lot of of national change. In fact, the last time I checked, but I'm giving you outdated information it's information from a year ago. There were 258 national brands that were using Purdue organic chicken. Wow. That's incredible. In fact, uh, if you're buying a national brand like Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or almost any of them, uh, and if they have organic chicken, they have contracts with us. And then they'll tell us the specifications they want, you know, the age of the bird and the weight of the bird and whatever else. Wow. And well, again, it's a year ago, but 258 brands that.
0: Oh, I'm sure it's multiplied since then. That's wild. We're a Trader Joe's Whole Foods family. And so I love hearing that. (laughs) That's so neat. I
1: I believe I can guarantee because to to the very best of my knowledge and belief, uh, we're the only one that does it on a large scale. Wow.
0: And to know that there's 20,000 employees there, I would love to know. I mean, I have a thousand questions, honestly, Mitzi. I want to write your biography, okay? When it's your <laughs> turn to have yours written, I'm like, I have so many questions to ask you. Because you you've lived such a dynamic life. And even as I was praying before we started, I said, you know what, God? Like, I'm sure there's been a lot of light shined on your your dad and him being a part of the Sheraton Hotels and your husband and him being Frank Purdue and even then Mark Fitz- Victor Hansen and all the things that he's done and the accolades you guys have got to share together but you, you, you little Mitzi, I think of you as a little ringlet, like a little girl, just like walking around town and experiencing the hotels when you were small and then the farmland and then the environmental side of what you do. The thing that popped out to me most excitingly is this new, and maybe it's not new, maybe it's been there and been cultivated for a long time, but this war correspondent role with Ukraine. And so I want to I take a journey of like little Mitzi to Mitzi, who is carrying a gun in our promo video
1: <laughs> uh, well actually this since this is a faith-based broadcast I, I will share with you please kind of like i mean it just takes me aback and amazes me mm-hmm. uh, for a good bit of my life you know i'm a writer by trade and uh for pretty much all my life i've i've been a syndicated columnist But I used to read the biographies of war correspondents. And when I was married to Frank, being a war correspondent, guess what? That wasn't in the cards. (laughs) Not so much. Not so much. (laughs) And somewhere around 10 years ago, I had the possibility of of being a war correspondent in Afghanistan. A four-star general saw the proposal of what I wanted to write. It was going to be called Six Who Served. And it would be the story. I've been invited to a forward operating base in, in Afghanistan. And so I've been invited to come. But it happened to be a, a group of military, military police whom I not only knew them in the States, I also knew their wives. And the book was going to be about what it was like for their wives and for those who were, who were there. Uh, So I had the backing of a four-star general. I thought, oh, boy, I'm going to get to be a war correspondent. But I got extremely turned down by NATO. NATO said, you know, the the four-star general proposed it to NATO because it had to have NATO approval. And they said, uh, we don't want a 72-year-old woman uh, in Afghanistan, you know, health who knows what? But yeah, they, sure I, 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 it just wasn't a possibility. I was so disappointed about that. And uh, a, a frequent prayer that I make is, thy will, not my will. So if yeah. it's my will, that I don't go. But still, I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was sort of always in the back of my mind. But yeah. I'm 82 now. Uh, and what I'm about to describe, I was 81. So. I thought, oh, that door's closed. That ship has sailed.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're like, it's over. If I can't go when I'm 72, I surely can't go when I'm 73 or 74 or 75.
1: Or 80, or 81. or 81. But I had written a story for Psychology Today on human trafficking on the border between Poland and Ukraine. Yeah. And it, it was printed in Psychology Today. I write for them pretty regularly. Yeah. So in this, in this, uh, this article that I had written, the title included the word Ukraine and the word human trafficking. Well, it turns out that the head of the Kiev region police, and the Kiev region is very large. He has 6,400 people under him. He had written his master's thesis on human trafficking. So somehow somebody uh, gave him my article and pretty soon I'm on a Zoom call with Ukraine. And can you imagine how exciting it is to get a call from Ukraine? Yes, that's so cool. Inviting me to come as his guest. Wow. To see To see for myself what I'd written about. Wow. And, and I'm thinking, uh, thank you, Lord. This yeah,
0: like he knows the desires of your heart. It's so yeah.
1: cool. And, and it, was, it was full of kind of – well, I, I went because – I'm a storyteller and I thought maybe there were stories that would benefit people to know. Well, my first night there, oh my, uh, I spent it in a bomb shelter. Oh, (laughs) oh my goodness. (laughs) Because the city of Kiev uh, was under attack and they have these air raid sirens. And if you're in a hotel, you're supposed to have, it's called a go bag and in your go bag, it's, you know, probably for ladies, it's a handbag. Yeah. And it's going to have your passport, any other documents that you really need with you, uh, any medications, money, and that's it. You have to have that by your, the door to your hotel, mm-hmm. to your hotel room. And if there's an air raid siren, they'd really like you in the bomb shelter within three minutes and they said don't take the time you know to put a robe on certainly don't take the time to dress your job is just to grab your go bag and you know they had showed us where the stairways was down you know for me eight floors into the basement oh my goodness uh and it was it was a really unusual experience for me because you know I'm traveling so I, I I'm I'm using the lightest clothing I can, and and the nightgown that I was wearing—it's not <laughs> one that I was planning to appear in. On the other hand, if you've got three minutes to uh, to get to the bomb shelter, that's what yeah. you do.
0: Oh my gosh! And then and so you were just totally caught off guard. Obviously, you had just gotten in, so you were probably exhausted. Then you hear this uh, this raid alarm go off, and you just jump.
1: Yeah, and then uh, for I've been to Ukraine twice. Uh, okay. Once in August, once in December. And both times Kiev was, was under attack. I can remember one time I was I was doing like four or five stories a day and one of them was interview with kids what it's like to be a school child in a time of war. Wow. And so there we are, um, I'm I'm with a police with a policewoman who's driving me there and yeah, you know, she we we're, we're driving towards the towards the school. It's it's in a a, a suburb of Kiev, and it's you know, like normally a 15-minute drive. Yeah. We're driving along, and she takes out... There's some little buzz that tells her to pick out her cell phone. She picks up her cell phone, and she shows me an app that if you're police or military, you get to see. And, and there on this app, we're like... I'm going to guess 20 little... Dots moving towards us, and she said, oh, "Those are those are rockets, and they're heading towards us right now."
0: Oh my goodness!
1: And it happens that they went over us, but when we arrive at the school, oh, uh, the lights one of, one of those rockets had hit a power station, and that meant that all the kids knew with these with this upcoming rocket attack. All the kids. The school has 300, and 150 of them are online students. Mm. But because of the rocket attacks and the uh, the power disintegrating, they uh, none of the online students could be there. But then, of the 150 students who should be in person, 75 of them weren't. Mm. And so I'm saying, you know, where are they? And by the way, we're in. Everybody's in the basement right now. The bomb shelter. Oh my goodness. And it turned out that 75 of the students, they were on their way to the school when the power was interrupted, which meant that the subway they were in stopped. So Mm -hmm. there they are underground, unable to communicate with anybody, uh, complete darkness and not knowing how long that's going to last. My gracious. All right. Okay. That's not the end of the story. Um, actually, I don't know what happened to the seventy-five students. I assume you know, a few hours later the yeah. power's restored. And gosh, no I I think- bathrooms on
0: those things. I don't think.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I hope none, none of them had claustrophobia <laughs> for real. Okay, but there I am, and you know th- they knew that there was going to be an American correspondent, so they were kind of prepared for my being there. Yeah. And uh, I got to interview a whole lot of twelve-year-olds. Hmm. How, what what grade is a twelve year old um they're about fifth grade fifth yeah grade.
0: yeah about fifth yeah. fifth yeah not
1: sixth yet okay, so I'm talking to these uh actually do you know remembering i think it's sixth grade yeah okay, sixth grade and so these sixth graders uh i yeah, you know, I'm there to ask what it's uh what it's like being a student during a time of war. Yeah. And I learned that because the Soviets I've that wrong term, old antique term. I'm trying sure, to say sure. the, <laughs> uh, the Russians, they they very deliberately would attack the power stations because their goal is to make as much misery as possible so that uh it would be as disruptive and demoralizing. Goodness. So yeah, this is an answer to the question of what it's like to to be a student in a time of war and one of the kids told me he was a math he was you know his goal is to be a mathematician when he grows up and he told me I really like studying but before the war I'd come home and from six to nine I'd do homework he said now with with blackouts we never know when they're going to be I I I almost never get to do my homework between six and nine. You know, if I'm lucky, there will be electricity on at 11 at night and I have an hour to do three hours work and I'm tired. And, you know, it's just it's just difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And other students in the class told me to give a message to American students. And the message was uh, be grateful for what you have, because we wish we could study you know, in an uninterrupted way, like you can. And, and then another story that I got from, from that visiting that particular school, I'm now with kids who are eh, maybe 16 years old. Okay. And I'm, I'm visiting a a physics class. And the teacher told me that with the city under attack, uh, she thought that the smart thing to do, you know, being a loving teacher, wanting her kids to be okay, Yeah. She'd come with an armload of books. I, I misspoke, an armload arm of games, because she wanted to distract them. She thought, you know, maybe puzzles or mm. magic tricks or whatever. She wanted to distract them. The kids told her, no, we don't want to be distracted. We're here to study physics, because we know when the war is over, the skills that we learn will help rebuild the country. We don't want the silly old games. We're here to loot learn physics, whether there's an attack on our city or not. Wow.
0: Wow. That's a definitely a total mind shift and heart shift to what Americans are doing at this point. Right. Goodness. And it's, I think, I think through, even as we were talking about like little Mitzi versus Mitzi now interviewing these littles is the revelation of just how history and war and society all shape us into who we are. Right. And so often we only think about like familial influence or the city in which we live, or maybe how old we are in that genre, that genre or era and There's so much wisdom that's being cultivated in those little ones, even against what, as a mom, I just want to hold them, you know, and protect them and like fix it. And knowing that we can't, I think about how, how much there is a leadership being developed and, and resilience and perseverance being built in who they are because of the story and the circumstances in there.
1: Yeah, that's. I, I, I was frankly just 100% blown away by, by their yeah. strength, their they commitment, don't. their patriotism. Yeah. Um, you know, they love their country and they don't want it to be conquered by, by the Russians. Wow.
0: Wow. I have a, a friend who was on the show, Andy Zeismer, and um, his colleague, and they started a missions organization that has brought now at this point probably 250,000 um no 400,000 when i talked to them so maybe 500,000 pounds of food to the front lines of ukraine wow. and they're sending missionaries out there just to as pastors to just be there and provide food and drive these trucks into you know dangerous territory you got to see it firsthand and just go and give food and pray with people who have now been lost their homes who don't have access their different people coming from different parts of the world, and they're just on the front lines of Ukraine. And so as I saw that, it made me think about that scenario and to know that there are people who have taken interest and not only just interest, but are actually serving and bringing help to those places.
1: You know, I was there a little over 10 days between the two, the two trips, and the amount of faith that I witnessed there, it would do your heart good. Yeah, I bet. I bet. As an example, there are a lot of churches in Ukraine. uh, And as far as I can tell, I mean, I'm ready to be wrong on this, but at least what I saw with my own eyes, uh, I don't think the Russians are targeting churches. I mean, thank heaven. And maybe they are, but I sure didn't see any. I saw a lot. of, And, you know, in some of them I, I got to go inside. And I realized the extraordinary amount of, of consolation that faith gives. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I would see people like I, I don't know this for sure, but say it's a mother who maybe's lost a child or a husband or something. And you you could tell that without the solace of faith mm-hmm. that that person would just be destroyed. Yeah. I, I I had huge appreciation for faith in a time of war. Yeah. For
0: your life, knowing how likely, and maybe I'm wrong, but drastically different, they're being raised versus how you were raised. How was faith an element of your life
1: growing up? Uh, I was brought up, it, this is a phrase, and I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's really apt, but still, this is how I was brought up. Yeah. Uh, service to man is the road to God. Mm-hmm. So serving one another, serve the least of them and you're serving me so yeah. uh you know both both my parents were, were they both attended services every sunday uh but the, the, they were very well service to man is the road to god my my father you know he was the president and found, co-founder of the sheraton hotel chain so he's a very wealthy man yeah. and how about? Yeah, at the time of his death, he employed 20,000 people and owned 400 hotels. So this man is just super successful. But tell me if this, it, it's not overtly spiritual, but it is spiritual, what I'm about to repeat. I yeah. remember when I was young, and I'm going to guess, at a guess, maybe 10, uh, it was a weekend. And he had an office in our home. And so I wander into his office. I don't know what for. And I see him just... Buried in in books and ledgers and just hard at work. So, of course, I interrupt him.
0: Of course, why not? (laughs) Of
1: course. What what are kids for? (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so, you know, Daddy, what are you doing? And he said, "Uh, I'm reading charitable requests. Mm. And I said, but, you know, how come you aren't out playing golf or something? And he said, first of all, that uh, he'd rather be doing this than playing golf. The second thing he told me and this is what seared in my life. The rest of my life was the greatest pleasure my wealth ever gave me was in giving it away.
0: Mm. Wow. So, so
1: good. is the road to God.
0: Yeah. So, so good. I, it's funny. This there's is
1: so- more to faith than that. but uh, Oh, 100%. But, but you did ask uh, what it was like growing up, and, and that's what comes to mind.
0: Yeah, which I love. And it's so correlated. You know, I I always come to these shows with an opportunity to learn, of course, but also to have an opportunity to be convicted or corrected, which sounds weird. But I just, I come with an open heart of like, God, teach me something new that I can become and be better in. And the last two days specifically, there's been a ton of conversation through my services that I've been to around generosity and what it looks like to give. And I have something I'm going to share with you that I. I can't believe I'm sharing this out loud, but Yes. somebody wants to steal it, they can take it. But the Lord gave this specifically to me a couple of weeks ago, and He gave it to me again just this morning. I sent it to my new CFO who's coming in and my operations manager, and I said, look at what verse was in my morning read this morning. And it was about the woman with the alabaster oil. Do you remember her? She was, she was mentioned to the perfume bottle in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Jesus was sitting with Pharisees at dinner one day, and a bunch of sinners and And people who were the least of these were at this dinner party. And she comes with her her last bit of perfume. It was called the alabaster oil. And she was weeping at his chair. And when she was crying, her her tears were hitting Jesus's feet. And she was wiping them away with her hair. And the person is like, what are you doing using that expensive perfume? That could get you the next wages for the year. And you could help other people. And Jesus said uh, basically why would you ridicule her? She offered me, you didn't even offer me a foot washing station when I came in and she's been washing my feet with her tears. And she gave the last of her most expensive oil. How much more will I provide for her? This woman will be remembered in history as the woman who gave of me. And she was the first person to anoint Jesus with oil before he went to the cross giving the last of all she had. And so the Lord has impressed on me since the beginning of this adventure with Him um, in Fit and Faith to not take a dollar not take a dollar for anything for myself. And it's been interesting because it is not the profit first methodology that most entrepreneurs are teaching. But he keeps audibly saying to me, Mitzi, I've said it in multiple worship sessions, he says, don't take a dollar, don't take a dollar. And so everything that we've made has just been reinvested and sent out into any way that we can. And so hearing you say that after two specific days of people talking about generosity, it's against our flesh to not, Feel safe or protected. It's against our flesh to to want to give something away that we feel like we've earned or we put the work into. And I love that you shared that of all the things you could have shared because it just seals the alabaster oil, my heartbeat for what business is supposed to be and what God is asking of his children when we do have the gift of a vision and we do have the gift of service and we do have the gift of having favor and blessing and protection in our lives. Unlike those children you're mentioning in Ukraine, you know, they can start a business, but they need that. They need that business for livelihood, for service. And it's just, it's interesting. So I just, I felt led to share that with you.
1: Well, allow me to share something that Frank Perdue used to say. Uh, he'd he'd, he'd you know, tell his children this all the time. Uh, and you know, they, they still quote it. If you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. On the other hand, if you really want to be miserable, think what's owed to you. Mm, so. and to, to my mind, that's almost, you know, in different words, the same attitude that my father had. He loved giving it away. Frank was the most philanthropic person I ever know. And by the way, uh, the story that you told about the alabaster oil oh. Uh, It reminds me of something that really influences my life, or at least it has for the last probably forty years. Yeah. It happened, I mean it was coincidence, but in one week I read a biography of Napoleon Bonaparte, Emperor of France, and Mother Teresa. And here here's kind of the lesson that I got from it. Napoleon Bonaparte had more wealth, money. Power, women, sex, glory. yeah, yeah, just every every goodie that the that the world has to offer. Yeah. Probably more than anybody before him ever had, and I'm not sure anybody since has had that much. Hmm. He of of the material goodies, boy, he had it. That same week, I read a biography of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, she owned four things: three cotton saris that she wore, and the sandals on her feet. Other than that, she had no possessions. Uh, her entire life was dedicated to God and service to man. Hmm. Okay, so, and by the way, her specialty was taking care of lepers who were dying. And I don't know if you've been with dying people, but, you know, it's, it's not a lovely, beautiful experience. Well, in a way it is, but uh, yeah. at, at least on the physical level. Yeah, yeah well it's it's not something that that most people would choose it's 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 difficult i mean there there are people in hospice who say that it's just one of the most moving things in the world uh they're built of different stuff for me, and so is mother Teresa yeah. so, <laughs> so uh so she had what yeah you know, to an outsider would look like just a terrible life. Three three cotton saris, and mm-hmm. by the way, not fancy saris, but the ones that were woven by lepers, mm. uh, and and the sandals on her feet. C- can you get more opposite from Napoleon? Yeah. Okay, who was happier? Mm. And not to put you on the spot, I will answer my question. <laughs> At the end of his days, uh, Napoleon was isolated in an island in this, I think it's the South Atlantic, Elba, no, St. Helena. Uh, no, he died there, but he did, uh, he did have people around him who were writing down what he said. And one of the things he said was when he looked back on his life of you know, all that money, power, sex, just yeah. the goodness of the world, he said he couldn't count five consecutive happy days. no the world's goodies did not make him happy what about mother Teresa, who had virtually none of the world's goodies (coughs) she said looking back on her life my life has been a feast of unending joy Mm. so the person who served others was Mm -hmm. joyous the person who made his living stealing from people and creating wars and taking uh, couldn't have five happy days. Golly. Is that not a lesson?
0: It's a lesson, and I love that I don't believe that there's ever coincidences in how we read things or how things are presented to us. And so what a beautiful symmetry just in that week of having the revelation of reading that biography and then the next one and being like, Oh, like just breath of life as you go into the very next moment after those different experiences. I love that you shared that what a what a dynamic experience
1: yeah, I do think it changed my life i th- I think my my parents brought me up with an idea of service, but Napoleon the taker and yeah. uh, mother Teresa the giver yeah which which would you rather would you rather yeah. Have- a feast of unending joy or
0: unending joy. That's eternity. Right. And who knows where Napoleon went, but I could imagine. And so I just think about that. And like, I, I would give it all that woman, the alabaster woman, she gave it all. And she had no idea the extent to which she was going to be blessed. And she was never really mentioned again, but it said that no one would forget her name. And look, here we are 2000 years later talking about her. And so, I just think it's, it was a seal from heaven and like gives me such freedom to keep doing things. And like, how much bigger did Mother Teresa get to do things? Because she knew that that bigger, just as all the things that you've been able to do with the different platforms and access points and resources you've been given to to make way for others to thrive and for, for ultimately kingdom expansion.
1: Well, allow me to share something that, um, I got a lot of attention for, I didn't do it for attention, but after visiting ukraine the first time i was so impressed by the the courage the patriotism just the goodness of the people that i met example those children that i mentioned who uh wanted to study physics even when their city's being bombed yeah um, during that time we knew that the russians were bombing the power stations i mean they did it while i was there in fact I even visited a power station where the next day it was bombed, wow. um, and and just like put out a conflagration. Uh, I I left from that first trip with the feeling I want to do everything I can to help help Ukraine. I, I and among the things that we knew was when when a power station's bombed, there's no heat, there's mm-hmm. no light, and it's freezing in December. Well, I was there when it was 20 degrees. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and, and it is December. And can you imagine the following? I talked with people who endured this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in an apartment building. Say you're in the 20th floor. There's no electricity. There's no light. There's no heat. You can't cook. The elevators don't run. And the 21st of December, the, you know, the, the winter solstice, it's dark 15 hours a day well, can you can you imagine being cold terrified and you you can't distract yourself with your iPad or something yeah no it, it's just nothing uh, and I, I I talked with one guy who, who told me what it was like he said you're just sort of taken over by uh, he speaks English yeah he used the word torpor where you just you're, even when even when it's daylight when you've had this fifteen hours of dark just lying there cold um he said it just saps your energy Your, it's just he, he's he said it's indescribable, but I think our imaginations can have, can get us part way there yeah. well when I came back from Ukraine the first time i had uh my my late husband gave me. An emerald ring as an engagement present. It was it was an emerald that came from the sunken treasure ship Atocha. It's mm-hmm. it the the Atocha sank in 1622, and when it was recovered in well almost 350 years later, Frank Perdue was one of the financial backers of recovering it, and wow. you know he got many 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 I mean how about millions of dollars worth of of treasure from it, yeah. He gave it almost all away. He gave it to the Smithsonian, and he also gave it to a uh, to found a museum in Delaware. Wow! And he did that because Delaware, you know, to have a museum means more tourism. So he did it kind of to help Delaware, which is a neighbor state. So neat. Yeah, it is so neat. But he did keep a near perfect emerald, and near perfect emeralds are very rare and he had it cut into a stone that would you know he, he he inherited not inherited he was as a backer he was given a crystal that's sort of the size of my little finger mm-hmm. my finger up against something dark yeah and there was a perfect emerald hidden within the crystal and he had it cut and he gave it to me as an engagement present uh-huh.
0: Amazing, you want to impress a lady that, that that's <laughs> impressive that works,
1: <laughs> wow, and I wore it every day during our seventeen years of marriage, but after he passed away, uh I was afraid to wear it because I was thinking you know it's it's something it's it's a historic treasure yeah from it it's historic and it's rare and it's beautiful. I kept it in a safe when I returned from Ukraine the first time. <clears throat> I really wanted to do something of a humanitarian nature to help the Ukrainians. Yeah, We put it up for sale at an auction. It made one point two million dollars. Wow! Every penny of which went to uh, to support Ukrainians. It would do some of it went for things like you wouldn't believe how important this is, and people have told me how important it is. Flashlights. Wow. Yeah. I mean, imagine that you're in a completely dark apartment yeah maybe you want to go to the john or something in the middle of the night no light Mm. flashlights or or you want to read a book or something flashlights just turn out to be extraordinarily important warm clothing was important and then 300,000 of it has gone to creating a woman's shelter Mm -hmm. for victims of human trafficking or domestic violence and well, I've never done anything that I've been happier with than than giving away that ring and I also know for absolute certain that Frank would be overjoyed that that the ring is going to yeah. something that will help so many people.
0: It's incredible. That's what the multiplication factor of heaven looks like, right? It's like taking one thing or 1 million and being able to disperse that to create generational legacy because otherwise so much could be lost and a life is so much more precious than anything as much as that was like a cherished thing but it's like i always my pastor says it actually but it was the revelation you can't take a hearse to heaven right we can't, you can't take a hearse to heaven so if you can't take a hearse to heaven why do we need it anyway and so it's like the the generosity piece you know we give to give out of goodness sake but even the heart and the, the, recipro- the reciprocity that exists when you give is just like, Oh my gosh, the fruit that God gives in response with peace and love and joy as like the gift that we get out of giving and we don't give to get, but it happens. And it's just it
1: that beautiful. Yeah. I, I heard a phrase, I don't know who said it, but um, this guy said the whole through which you give is the hole through which you can take, and that's I think good. I think what that means is uh, the more you give, kind of the more it comes back to you, and and I do feel that okay at eighty two, and uh, today's my birthday. Hey, happy mm-hmm.
0: birthday, Mitzi! That's amazing.
1: Well, this is probably happy birthday, birthday. <laughs> um, but I I do think that that that's probably the most generous thing I've ever been able to do, but it's also the action that i 'm most happy with, having taken it yeah. I, the, the, the good feeling to me is just crazy good, and i I wish other people uh, you know, could benefit from from what I learned, which is it really is more blessed to give than to receive
0: yeah, yeah, it 's so good. I was talking to my mom even just this morning we were talking about. No one hates, especially like a new Christian who's sitting in a church service and they're listening to a tithing message and they're like, oh, the church and the money. And they're like in their brain, right? Thinking of all of the negativity. But yesterday our pastor did such a beautiful job and I was processing and I told her, mom, imagine this, imagine. And instead of having that like weird feeling at the end when they're like, and here's the tithing, you know, text this number two or give it your check in the tithing box in the back. And people are like... Okay, I'll give. What if we brought our money and we were celebrating our way to the altar, and we were just laying that money down, and you just like kind of like they do in repentance services or altar calls, where people will put drugs out there or they'll put away the things that are negative, and they're like, I give this all away. What if we did that with our money? Like, how? What a celebration that would be to know that it's going in safe havens to help expand people and lives. And she just kind of looked at me and she's like, I've never thought of it like that. And so I just want to dance my way into giving. And it's so different than what I've ever been taught. And like I said, my flesh doesn't necessarily want that. My flesh wants comfort. My flesh wants safety. But I know I'm so blessed. We are not worried about a bomb hitting me currently. And you know we have light and there there are simple things in life. I get Purdue chicken in my freezer later, right? (laughs) There's simple things in life that we take so for granted as what is safety and what is generosity
1: yeah you know even safety because while i was in ukraine i was asked numerous times things that with a different attitude would appear very unsafe for sure Um, okay i'll give you an example yeah uh and a geography lesson at the same time uh you've heard of chernobyl and the terrible explosion there yep that was 1986 there's something called the Chernobyl Exclusion Area. It's a thousand square miles. And it's where uh, there are pockets of intense radiation enough that you know can kill you probably in a matter of days. So it's, it's, it's a dangerous area. Uh, I, as a journalist, wanted to see it. Journalists <laughs> in general aren't allowed in. I However, uh, the head of the Ukrainian police, it's the police that enforce this. And they know that if you drive fast enough so that your dose is very low, you're going to be okay yeah and and I got to see parts of of Ukraine that I could guess that not many journalists have ever seen, and they were amazing, yeah um, but we're driving by um maybe at seventy miles an hour because if you stay near one of the hot spots for very long, you're in trouble but he gave me, well, not he, the, the Ukrainian police provided me with a dosimeter and I'm not driving. I'm, I'm there taking notes as fast sure. as I can. Sure. Um, and the dosimeter, you know, it tells you, uh, if it goes above this, you got to get out of there real fast. Uh, and, and when we left the exclusion zone just for safety there, we were patted down with Geiger counters, you know, to, wow. yeah. So it was, it was a real deal. Um, uh, crazy it's a thrill well for somebody who has a taste for adventure <laughs> yeah i do <laughs> so that's a thrill <laughs> yeah for somebody who wanted to be a war correspondent <laughs> yes but, but this is on the belarusian border the, the, you have if you're let's say you're in kiev and you're going north and you're headed towards russia yep before you get to russia there's the country of belarus uh, i was close enough to the belarus border that I could hear on the other side artillery fire. Wow, wow! And we were traveling at eighty miles an hour. And actually, there was only one time, my entire time in Ukraine, ten days total, where I was feeling really uneasy. Yeah, but it wasn't because of the artillery fire. It was that we were going eighty miles an hour through small villages, I like and that. I'm I'm thinking, what are you doing, child? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm thinking. You know, what if a child runs out? I, I was, I was really scared because yeah, I, I don't, I don't want a child to die because right. it's be terrible. Uh, but I didn't have any say in it. Um, they were going 80 miles an hour, and they explained why. Yeah, uh, because uh, this is going to sound really vain, but we're all friends, so I have permission to. <laughs> yes, you Say how it was. Uh, because I have a famous last name, I'm considered a high value target mm. um, and there there are groups like the the Wagner group that makes a lot of money uh capturing people and holding them for ransom Wow so uh I was told i mean I don't know if this is true, but I tend to believe it that Wagner would just love to get hold of me <laughs> exactly <laughs> for well, sure <laughs> well so. We're driving along at at 80 miles an hour, and I was told that. uh, I mean, I know it was 80 miles an hour because I could see the speedometer. And actually, it was in kilometers, and I forget what kilometers is, but translated. I trust you. (laughs) Translated, it's 80 miles an hour. So we're zooming along, and uh, and so finally, I work up to the courage to ask, you know, why are we going so fast? And it turns out that if you're on the other side, there's a river in between. And so we're, we're speeding past, uh, you know, parallel with the Belarusian border. And if somebody uh, wanted, meant me harm, uh, if I was, if we were traveling what I would have considered a safe speed, <laughs> 25 miles an hour, uh, that they could, they could target with, with their artillery, mm. they could target the, at 25 miles an hour, You can hit somebody at 80 miles an hour. You don't have a chance, so don't even waste the ammo.
0: Wow. Wow. So you're like, now your heart's beating extra fast.
1: (laughs) You're like, go, go. (laughs) Uh, I'm still worried. I mean, (laughs) it's still worried about the baby, of course.
0: I mean, I I can imagine even, even like an animal coming in, that would be catastrophic. I mean, to be scary, you would like literally collide. I mean, that would be grotesque.
1: You can't, at that speed, you can't stop. Yeah, unless maybe if you're a police driver, you, you know, all the tricks that yeah, I yeah, yeah. Know. and maybe it was safer than it felt. But uh, that was the only time that, that I really felt uneasy.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Even the other stories that you were sharing, the fact that you had gone to a, the site and it was bombed the next day. I'm like, man, just the provision and the protection that God had over you in those scenarios is just such a blessing in and of itself. But yet, at the same exact time, you still got to see. Like, it wasn't held back from you to not be able to witness.
1: Well, the the head of the Kiev Region Police, he, he told me that there are all sorts of correspondents who come, like, to watch battles. Or maybe they come to watch uh, and report on, let's say, charities that, that are working there. Sure. But he said that I was the first correspondent who was interested in the police Mm -hmm. and the the police they're they're a huge story because russia in the last beginning in 1991 when the soviet union fell apart russia has invaded eight different countries Mm -hmm. that i don't think that's widely enough known but it's Mm -hmm. eight countries in the time between 1991 and today there's only been four years when Russia isn't actively involved in a war. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, they're, they're, they're an extremely warlike country. Yeah. And they have a playbook that they do pretty much every every time they invade a country. And that is one of the first things they do is they do everything they can to destroy the police. Mm. They bomb the police stations. They either steal or destroy the cars. They're very big in destroying police communications. Mm. And they do that. It's here. Here's why, why they have this playbook. Because it's very traumatic to a country to be invaded, to the people of the country. But it's also very traumatic if in a civilized country, you, you count on the police to serve and protect. You know, yeah. if your store is robbed, somebody's going to come in, and with luck, there's going to be consequences. Uh, how about the Russians? They... They don't just bomb the police stations. They also empty the prisons. So there are all these bad guys who who are loose and there's nothing you can do about it. And the reason, the reason this is part of their playbook is they want to demoralize the country just as much as they possibly can. And that's one way.
0: Yeah. And they're getting in the heads of the people. Like imagine there's already fear. Now it's like triple, triple 10 X that fear. And it's, it just freezes everything. It freezes the economy Right, because people are staying in, it freezes education. It freezes all of these different, you know, elements of society if people are locked in fear. I think we experienced a bit of that with COVID.
1: We experienced a bit of it, but good lord! Which brings me to one of the big reasons for fear right now, and uh, whatever resources I can pull together, like the I I want to go to what I'm about to describe. It's mine. Clearing as in landmine clearing. Yeah. Yeah. I, if anybody wants to do something that will really help Ukraine and where I'd stake my life on the idea that the money that they give it's going to actually go to help. Uh, I've started a crowdfunding organization. It's called donorc.com slash Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And donor is like giver. You know, mm-hmm. I donate, I'm a donor. C is in like, I see you.com and then forward slash Ukraine. If you will, if you will come to that place and give, you know, $5 would be wonderful. Yeah. The goal is $300,000 and we're halfway there. Wow. And, and I, I'm very anxious. I mean, I'd love big donations, but I love small ones because yeah. when I go to Ukraine again, I'm going to mine clearing school Wow. And people, and people think I'm saying mind clearing. Uh, no. No, mind,
0: mind like bombs, explosives in the ground.
1: Yeah. In fact, I should just say explosive clearing.
0: Yeah, for real. I mean, that I only could recognize it because right when I saw the video on that site, I'm like imagining the just the demolishing of what would transpire in my heart, not to mention all of the people and things that it would destroy. Um, but I... I'm curious in all of the things that you saw, what led you to this specific next step.
1: All right, cuz cuz up until I don't know, August of this year, yeah. my big, big cause was whatever I could do to combat human trafficking, which seemed right. to me like the worst thing that one human being could do to another. Yeah. But then I learned that supposing that you rescue a woman from trafficking, you get her back in Ukraine, she is not going to recover as long as their minds around because with oh, the the Russians are just so evil about this that they'll, they'll do things like they'll mine children's toys uh, i've i've seen like um like an ipad it looks just like an ipad but you open it up and there's plastic explosives in it and the way it works is did i say ipad i'm i'm trying to say iphone
0: Oh, yeah, either one. Yeah, iPhone.
1: Okay. Okay, well, what, I, what I'm describing is an iPhone. Okay. Uh, they leave these things around high schools. And, yeah, you know, what kid seeing an iPhone that doesn't seem to belong in, to anybody wouldn't pick it up right? and turn it on. But the light that happens with turning it on uh, is going to connect a circuit that will connect the explosive to the plastique, and that person's probably going to die. Holy moly. Or, and they they have mine lane rockets you've you've seen pictures of the high Mars rockets where they're like fifty tubes that that shoot out rockets yeah okay, they have those same they're not called high Mars, but they they have like fifty rocket tubes mm-hmm. and inside the rocket tube is a rocket, well, fifty rockets and fifty tubes, and inside those rockets can be 75 landmines and they can just shoot out and suddenly you know in an area there're 3700 landmines that can kill a person
0: and they're just implant into whatever they land into and
1: holy moly that's terrible yeah and so so why did i switch from caring about human trafficking which i still care about yeah of course it's it's pretty well known that if an area has mines uh That you're in a state of constant uh, post-traumatic stress or PTSD because you don't know know if you're going to get blown up. You also don't know if if the people that you love are going to get blown up. Oh, my goodness. So mind clearing seems to me what we need to do first.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow, Mitzi. Hmm, I'm like processing all the things that you've walked through and are currently still actively walking through, which I love. And I love that today's your birthday. How do you, after going to see that firsthand, because I mean, I just went to my first missions trip just in the Dominican Republic and I didn't get to see anything to that extent, but... Deep poverty, um, abandonment, uh, rejection, trafficking, all those things are all over the world. Um, but I got to see this, and though I never felt threatened from a war perspective when I was there. And I'm, I'm curious, because of that experience, are you able to fall asleep easily at night?
1: Yeah. Uh, there, there's something called, let's see if I can get the title right, but it's secondary traumatic stress. Right, and that happens to afflict too many people. Who, yeah. like in in the case of human trafficking, if you're somebody who is, say, you're a psychotherapist and you're treating, you have a career. Maybe you've been treating people for ten or fifteen years, yeah. and you keep hearing these terrible stories. Yeah. Uh, you you yourself are in somewhat danger of getting symptoms of, of post-traumatic stress yourself, except it's secondary. You didn't experience it, but you heard about it and you internalized it. Yeah, and then yeah. you have trouble sleeping, eating, nightmares, just uh okay, I know that danger. And I I put a huge amount of effort into I this will sound silly but true confessions. Yeah. Uh, I want to I want to be horrified and care just enough so that I will give everything I've got, yeah. but I don't want to go over the limit of, of what I can stand. So what do I do uh, at night before going to sleep? Yeah. You, two, you two have all these wonderful things uh, like baby deer uh, <laughs> or, or people saving animals or just examples of yeah. pe- good people doing good things. Yeah, humanitarian work. and Yeah, so I just... I just search out the things that are going to be uplifting Uh, and certainly prayer plays a part in this. And, uh, and then there's something, well, so I, I I make a very conscious effort to, to have respite that I'm not going to think of these things full time or I'll go nuts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's super critical and we're, we're talking to a community fit, Fit and Faith stands for founders, innovators, and trailblazers, and I think when we have a mission or a vision that's been gifted as something that we know that we're capable of going into, or that Christ is going to make it through His strength, capability, we can we can get like lasered in, and it can uh, then we would be avoiding like all of our present blessings or our present circumstances, you know, and so. I could understand that I'd never heard about it from like secondary PTSD, but I I have definitely seen people experience that without knowing that that was the language for it. And so I was just really curious as you were talking, I'm like, Oh, my heart for all those people. I don't know how I would be able to sleep because I'm such an empath in that regard.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm probably less of an empath than you. I'm an empath. uh, While I'm thinking about it. Right. But, But again, I, it seems to me I'm no good to anybody if if I let myself get torn apart, it's good. good. So so just almost as an obligation, if if I feel that I'm sinking, yeah yeah. Go, go watch a baby deer. There are, <laughs> men. there are thirteen million people. The last time I checked, who have watched this? It's a picture of. It's a video. Of lumberjacks and a baby deer, and mm-hmm. you may not know this, but I know it because, uh, as an environmental journalist i 've been in l- lumber camps yeah, and somehow the deer i mean i don 't know why this is, but but I believe it to be true the deer if you 're a hunter, they know it, and they stay away if you're a, if you 're a logger, they kind of like you they they kind of stand around and watch and uh well, in this one case. And this is the this is what I recommend for anybody who's feeling down and wants to be uplifted. <laughs> uh, there's a baby deer that if if you're like a newborn fawn, your instinct, while your mommy is out foraging so that she can get food so she can give you milk, um, is just to stay very still and not move. That's what they're training for, or what their instinct tells them. Yeah. But in this case, the logger had to move the baby deer because uh it was going to be in danger from equipment. Right. The the, the logger didn't want to do it, but yeah, you know, do what you have to do. Yeah, I had to, right. So he picked up the baby deer and he's holding the baby deer and the baby deer is kind of nuzzling him and looking happy. Uh-huh. So scratching the baby deer's belly. And the deer goes like this, but now he's lifted the baby deer out of danger. And he starts to put the baby deer down, and the baby deer goes, Wah! so he's, so he's holding him again and you know, scratching, you know, just sort of oh him, looking all happy, trying to put him down again, and you know, like three times the deer just absolutely has a deer-like <laughs> tantrum. No, I don't want to be put down. And, so and then then the, the logger holds him again and cuddles him and strokes him and the deer looks all happy. Well, if if I'm feeling down, I go watch this.
0: <laughs> I'm going to tag it in this show for everybody because there's there is a reality that can be scary. And we talked about this before is like fear and faith can coexist and there's healthy fear. And then there's fear that isolates and fear that I believe Russia loves to implant. And so, um, it also fear moves us into action. And so, I pray that the people who are listening right now, you guys, go to this donorccom Ukraine. You're going to see all of that also in the show notes. And like Mitzi said, five dollars, five hundred dollars, five hundred thousand dollars, everything matters. And it's out of that spirit of generosity, and we doing it joyfully how much more joyful it is for those who are the recipients of such a gift.
1: Okay. And and there's something else. Why I want $5 gifts. I mean, I want any amount, but I want numbers of people because, uh, when I go back to Ukraine, I'm I'm a teeny tiny bit of a celebrity because of the $1.2 million ring that was auctioned and people in Ukraine watched the auction. Oh, wow. Oh, I mean, it was so cool. Well, in any case, uh, I'm I'm enough known because of that, that uh, like I was in radio, television, newspaper a lot while I was there. What I want to do when I go back is I want to show a list. Hey, there are 2000 people who care, 2000 Americans who care about you and who are willing to go to the extra effort because it takes effort. Yeah, of course. It takes effort. Uh, it takes a certain amount of money. Uh, It takes remembering it. But oh, the good feeling, the shot in the arm that it's going to be Mm -hmm. to the Ukrainians to know that Americans are supporting them. And Mm -hmm. I get to tell it.
0: That's so good. I love what the Lord has done through you. I love that you're the storyteller that you are. I love that you're celebrating your birthday with us today and that you're headed back to Ukraine and just... In the front lines, I mean, what a what a way to just leave a legacy in all the different ways. But this is just something that's going to change the history for these children, for these people, uh, for their community. And it's all linked to generosity. And I love that about you, Mitzi. Thank you so much. Okay, for can I add
1: that. one other part? Please, it-
0: we can play on here all day. If you want to spend your birthday with me, I'll just go get a little beverage. We'll hang out.
1: <laughs> okay, I'm loving it. Uh, but but the, the one thing that I would add, since since we're faith-based here, yes, uh, people say, oh, you're so brave. You're so courageous. No, uh, I, I, I don't, except for when I was afraid we might hurt a child. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, I, I I felt completely free of fear because I feel when the good Lord wants me, here I am. But I, I dearly hope the good Lord doesn't want me soon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. You got too much to do, girlfriend. And we, are, we will partner with you not only in this Ukraine effort for the minds, but also in prayer, because we know the power of prayer um, is expansive and it, it lasts into eternity, too.
1: This has been beautiful. This has been so uplifting for me. Thank you.
0: Likewise, I appreciate you so much. So honored to know you. I'm going to have to thank Mark Victor Hansen for the intro, and I know this will not be the last time that we we speak. But I just I'm very honored. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your birthday with us. It's been pure joy, beginning to end. Likewise, be blessed, friend.